today is December 2nd, 2010. Welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop, UTSA's neurobiology podcast. Our guest today is Bill Spain, who is a professor in the neurology as well as physiology and biophysics department at the University of Washington. Hi, Bill. Hi, how are you? Good. Bill has a long body of important work, um, mostly on spike frequency adaptation, which I guess we'll talk about. Um, but most recently, he's been using biophysically realistic computer models to study how synaptic input is transduced um, into tempor- temporally coded output in both N1 and auditory relay neurons. Uh, it's, it, his work in the avian auditory system was the first demonstration of short-term synaptic depression as an important and versatile timing and filtering device in the CNS. So that's probably a pretty inadequate dis- um, introduction for you, and I'm sure Charlie will get into more of, your, of the history that you guys have um, in your previous work. So around the room, we've got Charlie Wilson. Hello. We've got Todd Troyer. Hello. And we've got Rama Ratnam. Hello. And I'm your host, Salma Karashi. So, um, so in your in your work on sound localization, you've looked at various things. Um, so, how spatial location of a stimulus can be extracted from a time code with you know confounding intensity information overlapped in it. Um, in some of your more recent work, you look at how spike frequency adaptation could improve one's ability to localize a sound when moving relative to it. Um, so could you just talk about some of the problems you've tackled in this system in your process in terms of integrating the various levels of analysis that, for example, link um, KV channel activity in the brainstem nucleus to an animal reacting to sound in, in a noisy environment? So it's sort of a huge jump. In- yeah. Uh, well, actually, we haven't <laughs> made, really proved that link. What we have is just uh, consistent um, behavior in humans that, um, that uh, followed some predictions that fits with some physiology, but um, but I mean I have some thought experiments about how to make that link, but they'd be pretty tough and um, a lot of work, and I'm not sure if they they uh, all work out. But and I'm happy to talk about them. But before I do that, I got to just correct something you said at the beginning because I got to make sure you give credit where credit is due. Because uh, you were sort of going through stuff I did, and you said something about first. Demonstration of uh, okay, filtering by synaptic dynamics or something like that. Short-term uh, synaptic I heard depression. That. Yeah, yeah. So, so actually, there were several people that have had worked on that and sort of shown how you could get gain control from fast synaptic depression in a more general way. Um, and so, for example, Moshe Sodix and and uh, Henry Markram. You know, basically made that point, and and Larry Abbott and Sasha Nelson um, had a paper on that where they showed how it could control game control in the uh, in the cortex in cortical neurons. Um, what what our contribution was, where we did it in a system where we could actually sort of link it to a real sensory perception. Um, Rather than sort of as a more general concept, but the concept mind, was, the concept was out there. Do you mind summarizing what that concept is and how it works? Yeah. So, so the idea um, is that uh, so synaptic the synaptic depression. Um, what it does is uh, so okay. So the idea that these guys had was this idea of limiting frequency. So what what go, what happens is. If you have uh, a neuron that's firing to some some strength of synaptic input, right, and or if you have a set of neurons driving some other neuron downstream, um, what what's going to happen? And and if you now increase the frequency of the inputs to the downstream neuron, 
the downstream neuron um, is going to fire faster. But if, as you increase the frequency of the um, of the neurons coming into there, that there's also an adjustment of the synaptic strength as the frequency goes up that happens on a very fast time scale. So basically, as soon as you increase the frequency, well, in cortex, this happens over maybe a couple hundred milliseconds. In the auditory brainstem, it would happen over, like, literally a few milliseconds or a few sound cycles. Now, what happens is the strength of the synaptic inputs goes down. Then what happens is eventually you get to a point where the the amount of decrease in the strength of the synaptic inputs kind of works in the opposite direction and counterbalances the increase in the frequency. So if the downstream cells are... Or our integrators, there is eventually you reach what's called a limiting frequency where increasing the frequency of the inputs no longer gives you an increase in the frequency of the neurons it's driving. But you can still get the frequency of those cells up because you can always add in more inputs. Um, but it was kind of interesting in the auditory system because in the auditory system, the, the inputs, um, even in quiet that we were dealing with, we're all spontaneously active. So it's not like you, you, so limiting frequency became very important there because you, um, you couldn't then say, oh, I'm going to add in some more inputs when I get to this limiting frequency. Um, so, but anyway, that's the general I- idea is that as the frequency of inputs goes up, the strength of the synapses goes down. And so eventually you reach a point where you, you don't get any, any further excitation downstream. So I can see the benefit of that in a situation where a cell gets a lot of different inputs. It keeps some wild running, super fast inputs from dominating the postsynaptic cell. But in a cell that gets three, 2.7 inputs like your... Well, that's not where, where we studied it, though. So it doesn't happen in a place Well, it, like d- that. it does. So oh, that's a whole other idea there. Um, so th- th- where we studied it was in the output from the NM to the NL cell. So Can you take us through the circuit a little yeah, bit? Yeah, so so in, in this isn't a bird, and and the um, so the eighth nerve fibers, the auditory fibers come in on one side and on the other side of the, from one ear and the other ear, and they synapse onto... In mammals, uh, in the anterior ventral cochlear nucleus, or in birds, onto cells called nucleus magnocellularis cells, and then and those are the cells that only get two or three inputs. These very secure synaptic inputs called M bulbs have held, and uh, and then those NM cells or the anterior ventral cochlear nucleus cells, um, they send an output that goes both ipsilaterally and contralaterally and synapse on in the mammal on the one of the places they go on is the medial superior olive, and in birds it's called the nucleus laminaris. And so we were studying the synapse from the NM cell to the nucleus laminaris, where there's maybe estimates or maybe there's between 20 and 120 inputs from each ear. Um, and those showed this done. very fast synaptic depression. And the, and the idea there was that when the, that when the intensity of a sound got louder, so the job of these NL cells is to modulate their fine rate as a function of where a sound is coming from, and they do that fairly consistently. A guy named Jose Pina in in Kanishi's lab studied this analysis and actually showed that if you crank up the intensity of a sound, um, 
that you still get really nice modulation of firing rate versus where the location is. And so there's a bunch of mechanisms that go into that, and one of those mechanisms is the synaptic depression, where when you crank up the intensity of the sound, the firing rate of these NM cells goes up, but the strength of the synapses go down, and that helps to keep that, uh, that relationship of firing rate versus sound location um, const fairly constant. I mean, it shifts, but it shifts in a proportional way, and it shifts much less than you would predict if it was going the same amount by, like, you know, increasing by so many decibels or something. So, so that's what that was about. And in Cortex, if I probably won't get it totally right, but they actually had a paper before us, uh, uh, um, Larry Abbott and Sasha Nelson, and there were some other people on it, where they basically were showing if you had uh, to a cortical neuron um, uh, uh, a slow, you know, um, like a sine wave input, uh, an oscillating input, and you had a strong one and a weak one, what the relative strength of one or the other would be on the output of that cell and how that would be affected by that fast synaptic depression as you adjusted the amplitude of these two different sine waves. So the advantage of this is to give you some invariance uh, with amplitude. Yeah. And presuming that you're, what you're trying to detect is not changes in amplitude. Yeah. So, it, so it's, a, it's another, it's a form of adaptation. I mean, in the case of the auditory neurons, because it's a change in output to a constant input. And um, I want to go back when you said what you're not doing is detecting changes in amplitude. If you have this adaptation mechanism, what you are doing is detecting changes in amplitude. Right. But you, you, you're only responding to the yeah. changes transiently, right? Yeah. If it doesn't change in the long-term thing, then you're not responding to the long-term changes. Right. But you do respond in some sense, you only, or you respond more to the changes, right? The and short that's, that's changes, the point, right? and that's actually the point that, uh, that Sodix and Markram made in their paper as well, was that it's a good thing for basically looking at transients and, and, and not looking at things over long periods of time. What well, seems interesting in the, in the, in the, well, maybe in particularly in the auditory system, but in, in general, you, so if you take this as a big, long stream of information flow, you can turn down the gain anywhere, right? Uh, you can turn down at the synapses, you can turn it down at the neurons, and, and one of the things that, that seems different about, and it depends on, maybe we'll get into the multiple mechanisms of turning the gain down at the neurons, um, if you turn down some of the ways of turning down the gains of the neurons will actually slow down the time to the next spike is it's a way of slowing down the rate or the number of action potentials will actually slow things down mm -hmm. where that's not true in the normal way of thinking about synaptic depression where it doesn't slow down the synapse the synapse is no faster or slower after it's it's just weaker it's weaker yeah. uh, and depending on the mechanism, you're, you're now in the auditory system, the difference between rate and time gets really key, right? And so you may want to put it all there in the synapses, potentially, uh, because then you can just turn down the magnitude without screwing around with the, the time. Um, and I don't know whether you could think about the range of, of adaptation mechanisms in whatever cell, in the cortex or wherever you want to be whether they would have a different kind of effect on timing versus magnitude. I mean, it gets, it gets all convoluted. 
when you so you're like, just thinking of like sort of a general idea of like you expect this mechanism when you want that or that mechanism when you want that. Uh, yeah, I mean that's a cool idea. Uh, although I have to say in, there are intrinsic mechanisms within the auditory cells that also deal with filtering out changes in intensity. Um, yeah, and uh, and other things than individual synapses. So, um, like inhibition is a, is another good way to make sure that they modulate their firing rate as a function of ITD over a wide range of intensities. Um, inhibition does a really good job of that so as well. Uh, ga GABAergic inhibition. These NL cells, these are coincidence detectors, right? Yeah. So that's right. you really would not want them because that means they're very sharply tuned to ITD internal time difference. Yeah. So you would not want them to respond to intensity at all. You want them to be... Well, they do a little bit. They will, they will. Yeah. But you would ideally prefer, from a coding perspective, that they should be invariant to changes in intensity. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of like this goes back to, I mean, the, the really pure the, the, um, <coughs> duplex theory of sound localization is that, you know, the eighth nerve comes in and it goes to several targets. And one is to go to the internal time difference pathway, which is dealing with the time. And then the other... Um, you know, then another pathway, which would be like involved, maybe the lateral superiolis and so forth, would be dealing with intensity differences, right? And so that's good. So you've got basically in the eighth nerve both a rate code and a time code, but because the axon splits, now there's it goes to one set of cells that are going to mostly care about the rate code coming out of the auditory nerve, which are changes in sound intensity, and then the other pathway, which is um, is mostly going to deal with the time code. So as far as the intensity difference processing is concerned, you wouldn't really like to have this kind of a mechanism, right? You wouldn't want you it. Wouldn't, you wouldn't want to have in, in the time coding system. It presumably yeah. would screw things up. Yeah, a yeah. perfect a perfect coincidence detector would care could care less, less about, about rate. intensity, right? Yeah, but in the intensity processing system, where you're actually looking at internal level differences, yeah, you will, you're using those level differences as cues to determine the direction of the sound. Yes, correct. So if at that, if for those neurons, you have they are not sensitive to the changes in the input. And they're not correctly sort of coding intensity in some sense. So, would you do you observe in those neurons that this does not happen? Uh, which that, does what does steady, not happen? Steady state coding, coding of intensity. Right. So, talk yeah, directly so, about intensity coding. But steady state coding of intensity requires some kind of systematic relationship between intensity, intensity and neurons firing. Right. And yeah. all these adaptation mechanisms seem to be trying to reduce that or to lower the gain on. The intensity so. component. What What do you think about well, the intensity coding? I don't know about all. Okay, so now we're going to switch from coincidence detectors. Basically, let's just consider like an integrator okay. type neuron. Right. Is that what you're talking about? Yes. Which, well, there is which, this other way of telling where sounds are coming from, right? Right. Right. And I haven't studied those guys, but those neurons, at least, uh, you know, the neurons that are that are dealing with internal level differences. I mean, they're, they're, so that pathway actually does a thing where there's an inhibitory ner uh, nucleus on one side and excited nerve on the other side, and then they, the, the, the two sides converge then so that you're basically magnifying um, 
on one side and reducing on, on another side. So it's kind of amplifying the in intensity difference between the two ears. But but in the end, the cell that's looking at that, you it really it's doing uh, it's more going to be an integrator, where rather than a differentiator or a coincidence detector. And so, so if you just look at those cells that do that kind of job, and this actually gets back to why we even decided to study auditory cells in the first place, because we were working on cortical cells, and cortical cells at first pass behave a lot like integrators. I mean, they're not perfect integrators by any stretch of the ima imagination. They're very dynamic, and they can do lots of things, and they can do some differentiation. But, you know, compared to an auditory cell, yeah, they're integrators. And, and, and if you look at the cells that do, that are the binaural cells, the cells that are comparing the two sides in the, um, in the interaural level difference, they, their intrinsic properties, their membrane properties are very different than the NL cells or the MSO cells, um, because they, they look a lot like cortical neurons at first pass. In other words, they do integration. You give them, you give them, uh, you know, a step of current. And they fire. You give them a bigger step of current, and they fire faster. Now, you, now you were asking you something on top of that. Well, you've studied cortical cells. You bring them up. Yeah. You've studied spike frequency adaptation in cortical cells. Yeah. It's pretty strong. How come? Why do they do it? If they're integrators, what's the benefit? Well, they're not perfect integrators. Okay. And, um, and well, I don't know the answer. I mean, let's start from there. I don't know, you know, why... Um, you know, we've got all these dynamical properties that we see in different things that happen over different timescales in cortical neurons, and one of the frustrations there is we don't know enough about the circuit to sort of at the end of the day say, oh, yeah, this channel and this mechanism is specifically related to that. But you can still speculate and make hypotheses, okay. right? That would be good. And so, you know, there are... So, for example, in terms of spike frequency adaptation that's observed in cortex, um, and and there are multiple timescales of it, um, uh, you know, there's there's there are behavioral adaptations that people have attributed to that. So, you know, adaptation to some you know visual scene, right, where you see something and then the contrast dims over time or something like that. Or you see it less well over time. Um, you know, people, you can certainly find time scales of adaptation in the cortex that, that occur, that, that match that. In fact, there was a recent paper, I, I just saw the poster and I haven't read the paper from, um, this, the woman, uh, sorry, from this woman, uh, in Spain, uh, Sanchez Viva? Uh -huh. Yeah. Um, I forget what's her first name. Anyways, um, and this was just published in Cerebral Cortex. She just gave me this, this thing a couple of weeks ago, but um, a preprint. But she had a poster, and they—I'm trying to remember exactly what they were—they were—they had—they were looking at—they um, were doing an, aud an auditory cortex, and they were looking at uh, adaptation and adaptation that occurred over um, several, uh, like th maybe three, two, three, five seconds. And I think that was the time scale. Might have been like half a second to two seconds, but roughly that time scale. And so they were giving some kind of tones, I think, and showing that the response, um, 
basically they showed the response of the neurons to these tones diminished over time. But then they were able to relate that, because these were neurons where, that had been previously studied, where they related it to the buildup of calcium-dependent potassium current over that same time scale. So they made a link between um, this, this potassium channel that changes over that same time scale to a form of sensory adaptation. So there, that's a potential function for adapta- spike frequency adaptation in cortex, which... Um, I, I forget the exact auditory phenomenon, but it was some some adaptation to a, to some sound that they were given, right where there was less response to the sound over time. So, I mean, okay, so, so the I mean, you might then ask, well, what's that good for? But the general idea that came from way back when Adrian first described adaptation out in the periphery, um, you know, in the 1920s, was that one good thing about one thing about adaptation is it allows um, you to sense changes and ignore things that are going on for a, a while, and also to allow you to be ready for novel stimuli. So, um, so now you get back to your thing, I guess. I mean, now I'm going back in a circle, and you're saying, so what? Wait, wait a minute. So why would you want to have that in an integrator? But I think the point is they're not integrators. The cells are doing something other than just integration. Well, if the cell has a limited dynamic range and the world doesn't, then you could imagine that you're just sort of moving the window of the world that that cell's encoding with to be in the right, centered on the right spot. And and that's the basic idea. Uh, One of the the basic ideas about about how that adaptation works. Yeah. uh, Or what it's good for. So I, I have another sort of related question about that because... Uh, as neurophysiologists have looked at the mechanisms of spike frequency adaptation, and I think, correct me if this is wrong, but I think neurophysiologists sort of uh, found spike frequency adaptation as a ubiquitous phenomenon, started studying its mechanism without worrying too much about its relationship to sensory adaptation and things like that, for, you know, for the most part, the sensory neurophysiologists being the exception to that. But uh, we say spike frequency, if if I came to you and said, I have this cell, and it shows spike frequency adaptation. You'd say, oh, yeah, that and practically every other cell, because most cells show that. And uh, then if we start asking, what is the neurophysiological mechanism of it, we would start finding a surfeit of them. There would be a, you know, slow inactivation of sodium currents, buildup of calcium-dependent potassium currents, uh, inact- you know, inactivation of voltage-sensitive uh, currents. and It just goes yeah. on and on. Yeah, yeah. And a lot of these have really similar time courses. So you can't, I mean, sometimes you can say, well, this one is fast and this one's slow, and you've got to have some fast and some slow. But what, what's up? Why are there so many different... All right, all right. So now you're getting into something else that I first sort of learned about this or got this idea from Larry Abbott. Um, so he gave a talk uh, like maybe three or four years ago at the Society for Neuroscience, one of the president lectures, and it was really cool. And at the time, he actually did it in the context of memory formations. But but he but there, there, there was this general idea that he put out there was that um, if you have um, that if you have things that that change with a power law as opposed to exponentially you basically can extend the time range over which stuff occurs. 
and and so you get this more robust or or like in in this case an example he gave it had to do with LTP that spans a longer time scale right and also is very consistent in the way it behaves over that time scale um, and 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 he what he said at the time was that a way to do this was to string together multiple mechanisms that have sli- multiple mechanisms that can all be explained as like a single exponential, but all that are slightly different. And so he's different in time scale. Yeah. That, so so you've got like in the, so in the case of after so then he later on started saying well maybe this would be going on in terms of spike frequency adaptation too and even said well look we know about things like fast after hyperpolarizations and medium duration after hyperpolarizations and slow duration ones and there's an early slow and a late slow and you know and and actually as long as you stimulate a cell you'll probably find the AHP keeps building up and building up you keep discovering more and more ones. I mean, I can tell you a great story about a mutual friend of ours when we first started looking at these slow HPs, and he came into the lab. This was Bob Foring, and we were talking about these slow HPs, and he kept saying, oh, the guy, he actually took the, the the chart paper and spread it out there and was looking at it like that. He says, there's something slower there, guys. You better not publish this yet. So we went back and did longer stimulation, and we kept finding slower stuff and slower stuff. But anyway, um, so, so the so the idea would be is if you string together several of these things and they each can be explained by an exponential, an exponential in time, right? An Which exponential in time, but you string them together that you actually get over the whole span of that you get something that follows something more like a power law behavior. Power law in time. In time. I'm just trying to make sure that we understand what you're talking yeah. about. When you say exponential, you mean that it exponential it, in time. That means that spikes frequency decays exponentially over time. Time, right. And when you say that it's a power law, it means it decays according to a power law instead of exponential. Right, right. So, so it's got a longer yeah, tail. Sorry. It's got a longer tail. It, doesn't this relate to fractional order differentiation? Exactly, it does. Beatum and Torsen and then talk about in, in terms of adaptation? That's right. So, so, so there's, okay, so there, so there, right, so there was this idea, and I, this is another one of these observations that's still in search of, like, what's it really good for? Um, but, uh, there was, I mean, you may know other examples, but there was this example where, um, Adrienne Fairhall, when she was a postdoc, I think she did this in Bill Bialik's lab, they did this work with a fly. And they gave some visual stimulus to the fly, right? And they recorded from some part of the fly's vision system and the single unit recordings. And, and what they found is if you, so if you, um, they gave, I think it was, um, you know, a visual, st- like a grading or something, some visual stimulus that, that oscillated. And, um, and they could change, uh, I think they were probably changing. You could probably do it a bunch of different ways. I don't remember exactly. They maybe they were changing, like toggling from like low contrast to high contrast, right? And so what they found when you suddenly went to high contrast, the firing rate went up, and then it decayed back down over some period of time. But what they what they found is that there was this um, scaling of the time course of the adaptation, which went with um, how long the stimulus had been. So if it was just like one single exponential process, let's say I gave like some stimulus at low contrast for 100 milliseconds, 
and then switched up to a higher contrast, the thing would decay, you know, would decay down with some time course, the, the fire rate of these cells to this change in contrast. And, and if, but if my stimulus, um, had been, uh, you know, longer before I switched up to the higher contrast, the thing would still decay with the same time course, right? Um, it, it might start at a different level if you'd already adapted it somewhat. But what they found was that the time course that the stimulus was given, uh, that the time course of the adaptation scaled with the time course of the input that they gave. So basically, if you're, if you're oscillating between two states and you do it at one hertz, they'd get one time course of adaptation, and if they did it at, you know, 10 hertz, they'd get an, a, a faster time course and so on and so forth. Okay, and and it and it followed a power law, or actually, you can explain it with fractional differentiation. And so, so, so let me because this gets back to the HP. So then, Adrian actually came to Seattle, and um, and uh, actually, it's sort of funny because because Larry Larry Abbott had sort of proposed that well, maybe I mean he knew about that work and he had said, oh, maybe this AHP stuff that uh, Spain and Schwinton Krull had worked on in Cortex all these multiple AHPs, I'd heard him give a talk, could explain that kind of stuff. And that he did that a bunch of years ago. And so at the time, um, he had somebody who went and worked with a guy named Alex Reyes, who used to be my, who had been my postdoc, but he was a professor at NYU at the time. And they went and did this experiment where they basically toggled between two different levels of current injection and did it at, uh, you know, at different frequencies and then tr tried to measure it. And they basically didn't find any of this power law behavior, but um, they were screwing. Anyway, it was this very obscure thing, and, uh, and you know, they, they were actually, the way they were recording, they were dialyzing away most of the interesting AHPs. It was just a technical thing. And, I, and fortunately, I didn't really know that they had published this thing as a, a negative result in some obscure journal, or I probably wouldn't have tried it. But anyway, when Adrian showed up... Um, she got, had a student um, named Brian Lundstrom who got interested in the mechanism, under, you know, possible mechanisms underlying this phenomenon that they had observed in the fly. And it sounds like you, if you know other examples no, of it, I'd like to hear them. Uh, it, I, this idea has been around for a while, and, I, and I'm just wondering with reference to AHPs that it is simply that you take a, you have these different AHPs with the different time courses, and they may be all exponential with different decay times. Yeah. That's fine. But there's this concept called a distributed relaxation process where you can basically chain these together, and then you ultimately end up with what Charlie said. Well, that's so, the, so, so that's what Brian. Yeah. So Brian Lundstrom came into Adrian's lab, and she was a theoretician, and said, you know, I'm kind of interested in studying this. And so she sent them over to me because um, she said, well, you know, they, they've they've been studying these AHPs, or they had did years ago, and so uh, you know, Brian. <laughs> coming from a theoretical background that, uh, you know, it was like, oh, can you guys do this? And we're like, no, but we'll teach you how to do it and you can do the experiments. And so Brian did, did these experiments. He did a series of experiments where he basically gave either DC steps and toggled between two different states at different frequencies, or the other thing he did was he gave, um, he would give noise and then change the standard deviation of the noise, which would make the cells fire faster, and do that at different intervals. And and he 
basically looked at thi- at things going out to where where the changes were as slow where he was looking at things as slow as thirty seconds down to about one second or or maybe actually he went he went even shorter than that and what he found was yes indeed that in this was in um, in neocortical pyramidal cells that you got this same um, basic scaling of the time course of adaptation which went with the time course of the stimulus. And it followed, and so he actually did a fractional differentiation thing and found, I forget, it was like 0.15 was the fraction. Um, so so we always kid him about, he, he explained his brain like one number like they did in Hitchhiker's Guide to the right, Galaxy, but right. they came up with, I think it was 44, and he like came up with 0.15. <laughs> <laughs> so, 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 so it actually worked out, and it worked out down, actually below one second, it started to deviate, and so the mechanism's there. And, and he also showed that by manipulating the AHP, and in this case he manipulated, um, uh, a calcium-dependent potassium current that occurs over the course of a few seconds, um, and he manipulated because it's under modulatory co- control from serotonin that he could disrupt this. And then he also made a model where all he needed was the balance between was was three conductances with different time scales, not many, many like Larry Abbott had suggested, and he could get reproduce that behavior. So in, the, in that case, he used the balance between uh, so, slow sodium inactivation, calcium-dependent potassium, and sodium-dependent potassium, and he could reproduce, reproduce it. So, so at this point, can I just ask, uh, for, from a functional point of view, what is the, does the time course of adaptation matter, first question? Second, is a power, why is a power law needed? Why can't we just do simply with standard exponential because that's sort of classic first order system. Why do we need this uh, time certain time course of adaptation? And why power law? Well, okay, so I don't I don't know the answer to that. I Is mean, it an epiphenomenon, just the fact that you have all these different exponential processes just adding up? And that it doesn't really matter whether it's power law? No. Well, okay, so I, well, I actually, I'd be interested if you had any ideas. So when, when, when Brian was writing this up, you know, with me and Adrian and the other people involved, I mean, this is the question that came up. It's like, okay, you, we've observed this, and here's a mechanism, and it fits with something they observed in the fly. And so I kept asking them, what's this good for? Why do you want this? And there ha- so, so I think there are some theoretical ideas, which... Um, but but there's not nothing that's been I, that I know of that's been sort of proven like yes this is what it's good for here so there's some ideas that it's a more efficient way to do information transfer and I can't reproduce the math on that for you um, but so so there are some ideas about this but I don't think any of them have been substantiated so you're right maybe it's an epiphenomenon before you get away uh, yeah. I I gotta ask you how you got interested in this. From neurology, you're a neurologist. You work especially with epilepsy. Is that right? Yeah. Am I getting it right? So I'm thinking about the the segue between you know epilepsy and AHPs <coughs> or spike frequency adaptation. So you're making an assumption, Charlie, that I got interested in this from neurology. Turns out it was the other way around, and part of it was because I was just naive and didn't know what medical school was all about. So really I was interested in the brain and how it worked um, and decided I wanted to do that. 
and said, oh, but I'm kind of one inter- I'm interested in like the human brain and human biology. So I went to medical school thinking, you know, you can pick your courses and you study all kinds of things. And next thing I knew, I was learning how to be a doctor. And uh, so you went to medical school and you didn't know that was going to happen. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah, he said it was <laughs> There was a lot of stuff going on in my life at the time, <laughs> but, uh, but anyway, um, well, I didn't know it was going to be to the extreme yeah. that it was. Uh, you know that that really a lot of your time was spent being a doctor, and so, but but then I was there and I was like, okay, so I'll be a neurologist and. Uh, and that'll, you know, keep me in contact with the brain. And and then I had the plan that, um, well, you know, okay, I, I'll come back and, and and do, you know, get back into the experimental part and, and neurophysiology, neurobiology, you know, after I finish my clinical training, because it's pretty hard to do both at the same time. Um, so so it it really, really, I really started out thinking I wanted to do neurobiology. And it works out for you to divide your time between the clinic yeah. and the well. And it's, the it's, it's, it's not. I mean, so you, so I'm not as good a neurologist as people that some neurologists that do it full time. I, I like doing it. I've, I mean, but I I probably only do it like twenty percent of my time. And uh, and fortunately, there's a lot of smart people around me so that I can ask them questions and. Uh, I mean, I'm really good at figuring out what's going on with patients, but then when it comes to taking care of them, you know, there's people that do it all the time, and I ask them what the latest and the greatest is so that my patients get proper care. And then at the same time, it's hard to do as good a job as guys like you when it comes to doing experimental stuff because, you know, you're dividing your time. You, you know, there's only so much you can do when you're doing a bunch of different things. But there, But there's positives to it. And I mean, so for people getting out into their into their careers, one of the positives is it, it's it's opens up more jobs, it pays my salary. I mean, you get you know, there's if you're willing to see patients and 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 also train residents and medical students, you know, there's more job opportunities. So that's good. Uh, and the other thing is, it really does give you a certain perspective in your basic work. Um, I mean, there's just all kinds of times where I'll be talking to, you know, basic scientists and they'll have some really cool thing and they're not even aware that there's some like disease that this is totally applicable to. Like, like, um, you know, so we were talking about KV1 channels, um, uh, today, uh, a little bit in, and, um, and I saw this, uh, interesting poster at the neuroscience meeting, uh, about a week ago that Nelson Spruston had where he had shown that, um, that, that, uh, in some hippocampal neuron that, uh, that the, there was a, some cells that would, they, they would basically get spontaneous firing of action potentials coming from somewhere down the axon that was due to KV1 channels. Or I think they thought it was due to KV1 channels. I can't remember if they'd actually proved it. And so this was happening normally, although I wonder whether there was some pathology happening in his slices. But he, you know, he's pretty convinced that this is a subset of cells with, um, and, and they're sort of, they don't know what the function of it's going to be. But, but, this, and so the, these cells basically, you, so you give a little stimulus to the soma, 
and then in this subset of cells after the stimulus, the cell keeps firing, and it keeps firing for like 30 seconds or even longer. And, and what, and what they were able to show is that these action potentials were actually propagating back to the soma from some generate zone where they were being generated down in the axon. And, and I was like, well, this is really cool because what, and what he wasn't aware of is that there are, um, these two diseases in humans, um, that result in something called myokymia. Myokymia is, well, you've all experienced this. So myokymia is um, where have you ever had your eyes start twitching and it goes over and over and you, and it kind of drives you crazy and does the same thing and usually when we teach medical students about ALS in, in medical school they have all experienced that and they think they have ALS but it's not ALS it's a, it's actually a similar phenomenon but it's so regular it's very regular and it's not ALS but there are some people that have that as a pathological condition where they're getting it all over the place um, so you know they'll get like that repetitive twitch and it'll come and go and come and go in their arm and in their thumb and in their butt and in their eye, and and it's also stimulus inducible. So if you give like a painful stimulus or something, you can set it off and it can you know actually be fairly debilitating. Uh, interesting, you can treat it with things like uh, dilantin or phenytoin, but it's there's two known causes of that, and one of them is where people have tumors and they make antibodies specifically against KV1 channels, and uh, and uh, and the other one is a genetic thing called ataxia myokymia, where mostly they get myokymia and not a lot of ataxia, and they have a loss of function mutation in KV1.1 channels. And in people that have myokymia, what they've shown is that there's the spontaneous discharge or stimulus, or they or they'll take off after a stimulus and then continue on after the stimulus that are presumably occurring in the axons of motor neurons. And so this was like you know. The, like a known pathologic phenomenon directly related to what uh, Nelson had seen in the hippocampus. But so, you know, coming from a clinical background, you know, I have the advantage of sometimes knowing about some of these things, which is kind of fun to make those links. Well, thanks for being with us. This has been Neuroscientist Talk Show.